This is the Top Entrepreneurs Podcast, where founders share how they started their companies and got filthy rich or crash and burn. Each episode features revenue numbers, customer counts, and other insider information that creates business news headlines. We went from a couple of hundred thousand dollars to 2.7 million. I had no money when I started the company. It was $160 million, which is the size of many IPOs. We're bootstrapped. We have like 22,000 customers. With over 5 million downloads in a very short amount of time, major outlets like Inc. are calling us the fastest growing business show on iTunes. I'm your host, Nathan Latka, and here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Alan Ositek. He's the chief executive officer at Digilent, the paid media arm of ISP Digital, and he's in charge of the company's business development and expansion worldwide. He's also the president of ISP Digital, responsible for sales, human resources, and compliance. Alan, are you ready to take us to the top? I'm ready to roll. All right. Give us some of the backstory here and help us actually really understand the role. So are you one of the founders of a company that was acquired by ISP or, or how, how does Digilent and ISP, how do they relate? Yeah, so think of um, ISPD as a holding company, uh, no different than WPP, Publicis, Omnicom, where it's a holding company for a, a global marketing services firm, uh, and we're based in Southern Europe, the U.S., and Latin America. I think one of our uh, unique differentiators is our Latin American um, uh, focus as well, where we have uh, offices in Mexico, um, Argentina, Chile, Peru, so we have a really nice um, kind of Southern Europe, U.S., Latin American contingent. And uh, my, my unit, Digilent, is um, the paid media arm. So search, social, and programmatic buying. And did you found this company and sold it to ISPD? Or how does that relationship work? How did you get involved? Yeah, I wish I found it. No, it's actually um, the, um, the uh, a family in Spain is actually 100% owners of the company. It's the Rodez family. Uh, Fernando Rodez, who's our chairman, uh, used to be for many years the chairman and CEO of Havas Media. And then uh, about seven or eight years ago, the Rodez family started buying up marketing services firms uh, around the globe to kind of, and now they've consolidated this all under ISPD. So uh, I joined a couple of years ago. I had previously worked at uh, both Aegis and the Aegis Dentsu Network, as well as Omnicom uh, for maybe 10 to 15 years. So I've always been in the kind of the agency holding company space. And since 1998, I've been in, uh, in digital marketing. So way back when, when digital was primarily uh, email marketing and affiliate marketing, and then uh, search took off in 2003 or 2004. So always been in the digital space. So how does Digilent make money? Is it a cut of volume through you? What's the model? Yeah, sure. So uh, most of our business is in the programmatic space. So uh, we've historically been a, um, a DSP. Um, so That's if you're doing- display side platform? Exactly, display side platform like a like a MediaMath, AppNexus, or Google DBM. So uh, both in in Southern Europe, U.S. and Latin America, for buying display programmatically, real time, always on, biddable. We're working with clients across different pricing models, but essentially, you know, trying to to reach uh, brands, um, consumers using the programmatic channel. And are you so the reason I'm asking is a lot of the CEOs I've had on in this space, like Bill was just on from from MediaOcean, right? Bill Bill Wise. Yep. And you know, everyone the old way is kind of a cut on spend, but it's very competitive yeah, and yeah. it drives down, drives down, drives down. And whoever has the most volume actually wins because you can just put the other people out of business. So people are now trying to launch SaaS companies, right? On top of yep. the volume play. So where are you guys? Are you still purely percentage-based? Do you have a SaaS kind of BI product? What what's the what's the model look like? 
Oh, great question. Okay, so um, up until about a year ago, for the last seven or eight years, it was more of like an ad network buy on a CPM price basis. So we would agree on a CPM price, and uh, and then the margin between the three dollar CPM and what we buy the inventory for, let's say we bought it for two dollars, that margin between two and three dollars the dollar for CPM, we would keep as our profit margin or our gross margin. Uh, but what we've done is because of um you know kind of the movement away from what I'd call you know that I'd call that um, non-disclosed uh, you know media buying, and there's been a lot of you know, negative publicity about non-disclosures, especially at the holding company level in the marketplace. So now we actually have like three or four different price offers. What do you mean? What do the complaints sound like? Well, the complaints are, um, you know, the the real disclosure of all the different cost structures that lead into um, a potential media buy, right? So, you know, across um, the, what I call across the Lumascape, when you go from the, the brand all the way to the other end of the spectrum, the publisher, there's DSPs, SSPs, there's like six intermediaries involved and they're all taking a cut where um, a couple different consulting firms have, you know, have done studies on this to show that somewhere between, you know, 50 to 70% of the working media dollars are going towards commissions for all these people in the Lumascape as opposed to going towards working media to reach consumers. Um, it's actually quite honestly why um, Facebook and Google have done so well because their models almost from day one were, you know, most of the dollars, you know, upwards of 80 or 90% of the dollars are going towards reaching the consumers and working media, where I think in the programmatic space historically, it's been a small fraction of that. So what we did is we actually changed our model where we have a pricing model, we still have our CPM pricing model, and then we have a second pricing model where you can just pay a tech fee of say like you know 10 or 15% and maybe a services fee for us to do work. We have another model where you can just use our technology as a self-serve platform and pay a tech fee of 10 to 15%. And then we also have a, a model that you mentioned before, which is more like a search and social pricing model where you pay us just a flat services fee, depending on the volume of 10 to 20 percent. And uh, and then everything else goes towards working media. So, you know, essentially, it, it's interesting. Um, We don't really we don't try to sell one pricing model or another. More and more our clients are basically determining what model is best for them. How the hell do you keep all this complexity straight? Though? I mean, that's a lot of different options. Yeah, it's actually not. I mean, it's basically uh it's, 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 um, you, what you will find is that the clients, uh, kind of, you know, come to us and they say, you know, which they ask for what, you know, they, they know which model they want. It's not, it, the clients are pretty educated nowadays on these type of models. So for example, if you're a client that, um, wants access to a DSP technology that your people are going to use in house, then you're going to use our self-serve model. And it's a, you know, a 15% tech fee, or if you're an 15%, agency, 15% of what total spend they're going to put through the platform. Exactly. Over so the next month or a year? Uh, whatever your spend is on a monthly basis. So if you're spending $100,000 a month, it's $15,000 a month tech fee. And that includes everything from uh, you know having the technology in a workable fashion. Uh, we have a help desk. And in our help desk, for the people internally within a brand or an agency, they'll um, you know be able to access our help desk 24-7 to get any of the questions, technical questions to their, their um, campaigns answered. Got it. And about how, can you give us a sense of volume? How much are you processing annually, would you say? Yeah, we're, we'll, 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 you know, we're a privately owned company, but let's just say it's in the, you know, 40 to $50 million range globally. Got it. And you, like in the trailing 12 months, or that's what you'll do in the next 12 months, you think? Uh, in the, in the trailing 12 months. Okay. And so yeah. are you, see, the reason I asked about that is from a timing perspective, are you generally seeing growth in this space or is it really a flat business for you? Cause people are bringing stuff in-house or they're going direct to Facebook, cutting out middlemen, et cetera. Yeah, it's interesting. So a lot of studies, at least in the U.S., have shown that um, something like 90 percent 
of the new uh, digital dollar, dollars going into digital have been going to Facebook and Google. Um, hence, Facebook and Google's stock price keeps going up. But in the programmatic space, I think programmatic is taking dollars away from other media channels, still taking dollars away from print TV and radio uh, because it can be very niche focused. Um, so no different than uh, Google and Facebook. If you're looking to find, you know, women between the ages of 30 to 45 who love ice hockey and uh, are looking to buy hockey skates, you know, you can really, you know, using second and third party data, blue Kai data and other data sources, you can find these really niche audiences in programmatic, especially people who are in market, right? So I think, you know, programmatic is still seeing dollars flow into the channel. Guys, big news. Last month was a huge month for the company I recently acquired, which was www.thetopinbox.com. I liked the company so much when I met the person who created it. It lets you send emails later on Gmail, set up reminders like snooze almost to keep your inbox clean, do things like send auto follow-ups and do open tracking so you know when your emails get opened. It's great if you're in sales or CEO or trying to be more productive. So listen, I bought the whole company on the spot and I wanna tell you how I did it. I've showed the deal, by the way, to big, smart people, private equity firms, VCs, and they're dumbfounded. They go, Nathan, how did you do this? We've never seen a deal like this. How did you do this? So I did an unbelievable deal and I wanna show you the income report. So for me to send you the income report, go to www.thetopinbox.com click the red button that says install this on Gmail. And when you do that, my email will appear. It'll appear in a little uh, Gmail pop-up window. Send me an email and I'll reply immediately with the income report. And you can see how I'm buying and growing small B2B SaaS companies. That's www.thetopinbox.com. Totally free to try and use. www.thetopinbox.com. Do you own the relationships with the publishers where you find that inventory for your buyers or do you pay somebody else who owns the relationship with the publishers? Yeah, so um, the DSPs, um, in, in many cases, they don't. Uh, they, they work through what are called SSPs, which are the, the tech side of um, the, the publisher relationship side. So these things called SSPs are tied into you know, most publishers around the globe. And publishers nowadays, they're either selling their inventory through a Facebook network or the Google network or more and more even an Amazon network. And then the, the rest of their inventory is being sold either through um, their sales forces or through these SSPs. So as a publisher, you have these four or five options where uh, the inventory is being sold. And then what we're doing on the DSP side, on the buy side, is accessing all these different platforms to, um, to find the right inventory to, to, to reach the consumer on behalf of the brand. So kind of, I mean, it's, uh, unfortunately, I, and that was about as simple as I can try, try to make it. And if, um, if you had an expert listening to this podcast, they would certainly disagree with what I just said. And they would go into about an hour dissertation about how it really works. Um, but it, you know, it's, and that's, and that's actually quite, quite honestly, the problem between the publisher side of the digital media ecosystem and the platform side. So you have the publishers around the, the world who don't have one aggregated platform like a Facebook, Google, or Amazon to be able to, you know, kind of sell their inventory. So uh, that, that's why in some respects, publishers are, um, you know, kind of in a quagmire right now where, you know, they don't want to be disintermediated by the platforms like Facebook, Google, and, and Amazon. But on the flip side, as a buyer of media, whether you're a brand or, a, um, or an agency, it's so much easier just to go to Facebook, Google, and Amazon and buy at scale. So, you know, it's kind of a, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens to the publisher set 
but there's definitely there's clearly a need for um, you know one like one or two major platforms in the the programmatic space that can kind of buy at scale. And yeah. we're seeing that happen right now. Yeah, I mean, um, I, know, I've, so for, I've had some people on the show that are doing, I mean, billions in volume. You're doing 40. So I, maybe you have a master plan to like get to number one or two spot, but let's say you don't. I mean, if someone not comes and offers you 1X, right, your annual revenue, do you get rid of this part of the business and put your brain power towards something else at ISPD? Yeah, I mean, so it's a great question. So I think, well, at ISPD, the overall goal of ISPD is to build out an overall global agency services set. So you know, the holding companies are great, the WPPs, Publicis, Omnicoms of the world. But, you know, as a six or 700 person global agency, we can be kind of a smaller alternative to the holding companies. So if you're a, um, you know, our kind of our sweet spot is, you know, if you're a Fortune 500 company nowadays or Fortune 1000, you're probably either, you've either built in or you've probably, you're, you're in the process of trying to build an in-house agency or you probably work with one of the major holding companies. But if you're a, let's say a, Fortune 1000 to Fortune 5000 company, do you want to be a small fish in a big sea where you're the, you know, 100th or 200th largest client of WPP, or would you rather work with a mid-sized holding company that can bring, you know, the same skill sets and technologies to the table on behalf of a brand? Yep. Makes good um, sense. And- yeah, it makes good sense, Alan. Sorry, we ran out of time here, so I want to wrap up here with the famous five. Is our quick quick answers for you. Number 1, what's your favorite business yep. book? Oh, but, um Andy Grove, um, Andy Grove's book, which High Output is, Management. Now, uh, exactly. Yeah, I read. I read that. That's one of my favorite books. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying right now? Oh, there really isn't. I, I'm more. I'm more of a e news leader, uh, e newsletter reader, where I read like 50 of my favorite uh, folks e newsletters. So my favorite one there is uh, Darren Herman has a great newsletter for the digital space. Number three, what's your favorite online tool? Favorite online tools. So, ooh, great question. Um, LinkedIn. Number three. How many hours of sleep are you getting every night? Oh goodness. I actually, I'm a good sleeper. Six to seven. Six to seven. That's pretty good. As you're as you're taking the call on the side of a road in your truck in between Boston, New York, and the LaGuardia <laughs> traffic goes right. All right. And what's your situation now? And married, single? You have kids? Uh, married, three kids. Uh, college kid goes to Santa Clara and two Santa Clara University and two high school kids. That's great. And how old are you? Oh, I'm getting old. I'm 47. Ah, you're not that old. Take me back 27 years. Last question: What do you wish your 20 year old self knew? Oh goodness. Uh, I wish I, I I started a company when I was 29 years old that I sold to the Aegis Network. My 20 year old self, I wish I had started uh, done more startups. So start a company earlier, do more startups. There yeah, you guys. Before you, have a, before you have a mortgage and three kids. <laughs> there you guys have it from Alan. Start earlier when the risk and you can have really take more risk. You have more freedom. Maybe not said quite like that, but do it earlier on. He's now working at ISPD, building Digilent, processing about $40 million in volume on the programmatic side of things. Helped us understand how the money flows through the system in a space that is rapidly changing. Uh, major players, people going direct via Facebook, Google, and more increasingly, really Amazon. He's a player that people have an alternative to, especially if they don't want to go through some large holding company where they're not treated uh, with the white glove service that DigiLent offers. Alan, thank you so much for taking us to the top. Thank you for your time, Nathan. Talk to you soon.